Well, good morning, church. How are you? Man, I'm glad that you guys are here. Uh, hey, as those baskets are being passed, uh, let me remind you of something that's happening today. Today is Trunk or Treat Day. We've been talking about it for a couple weeks. We are very excited about it. Uh, listen, I hope you are planning to attend. Thank you for all of you guys who have stepped up. You're doing a trunk. You're volunteering. You're helping us out. This really is kind of an all-church endeavor, uh, and so thank you for being a part of it. But as we get ready to jump in, I, I want to remind you kind of why we're doing this. Uh, we're going to have the opportunity today to encounter hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people who don't normally attend church here. Some of them may not even know that there is a church here. And look, that is an incredible opportunity. It's going to be fun today, I, I promise, but the goal is not simply to do an event. The goal is not simply to have fun. This really is an outreach opportunity towards our community. So we're going to have a lot of fun, but as people are coming through, I hope that you'll make it a point uh, just to make connections with people. Uh, you might see people you haven't seen in a while. You might see neighbors uh, who might not even uh, come here or have never come here. Man, do your best to say, hey, so glad you came today. Why don't you come uh, and join us on a city? We love to see you there. Uh, I just finished reading a book uh, uh, on the de-church, people who have stopped going to church over the past 20, 25 years. It's a big, fantastic study. Uh, but one of the things that was very interesting to me, he said there's a whole section of people who used to go to church who don't. That the only reason they stopped going to church was not because they changed their theology or, or they're mad at the church or something bad happened. They literally just stopped going because they got busy or they moved. And they haven't just gotten connected again. And the only thing it would really take to re-engage them into the community of faith is just a personal invitation. That's it. That's all it might take. And so today, you might see somebody you haven't seen in a while. Man, go out of your way and say, I am so glad to see you. Man, why don't you come back? We miss you. We'd love to have you. You see a neighbor who, man, hasn't been here before at all. Said, hey, we have a spot for you. We'd love for you to come and worship with us. Man, come, come sit with me. Come be a part of it. These are just the little opportunities. You don't have to have a 30-minute conversation. Little opportunities you have to re-engage people, hopefully with the people of Christ, that they may have a true encounter with Christ and walk in Him. So you might even just want to pray for people as they're coming through. You don't get a chance to talk to them, but say a quick prayer for every person you're handing out candy to. See what the Lord might do through you. But it's going to be a ton of fun. Even if you are not doing a trunk, you should come by and just see how ridiculous we look, all right? It's going to be a lot of fun. Don't miss it. Three to five today, uh, it's going to be a blast. Uh, but now, grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 is where we're going to be today as we continue uh, our sermon series on walking through the valley. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 is where we're going to be in just a second. I love to hear those pages flipping. Hopefully you got that copy of God's word there with you. Romans 8, 31. And, and listen, as you're turning there, let me just be honest with you today. Uh, I begin today's sermon with a, a fair amount of fear and trepidation uh, because today we need to talk about the topic of suffering. And that is a topic that doesn't hit a few of us in the room. It hits all of us. And even if you might say, I have not experienced a lot of suffering in my life, the sad truth is that we will. But you might say, I don't know, is that really true that it hits everybody? And actually, that answer is yes. Look, uh, when you came in today and we all sat down for worship, we walked in amongst a group of people who looked well and well put together. I mean, turn around, look at them. I mean, we all look good, right? Right. I mean, look, you all wore clothes. I'm really thankful for that, all right? You got up, you clothed yourself. Some of the ladies put on makeup, right? You got yourself looked, looking well. When you came in and we did the greeting time, we smiled to one another. You might look around this room and say, Adam, I don't see a lot of suffering in this place. 
You can walk the, the streets of Mount Laurel or Highland Lakes or, or the village and you say, I don't know, these neighborhoods just look beautiful and put together. Surely everything's fine, but you only have to scratch just a little bit beyond the surface to find an unimaginable amount of pain and suffering. And as I walk with many of you guys over the years and, and some of you even now, right in this room, it's hard to look around the room because I know a lot of the pain that exists right here in this room just this morning or in our congregation as a whole. People who find themselves as a widow or a widower way earlier than they ever thought they would have to. People who have had to go through the pain of a divorce they never wanted and never foresaw. People who got a diagnosis that shattered their future and changed the course of what they thought their life was going to be like and how it was going to look for other people. It's the job loss. It's the diagnosis. It's the accident. It's the phone call. It's the betrayal by a close friend. It's the family problems. It's the addiction, either yours or somebody in your life that causes you pain nonetheless. There's the issues that defy description. It happens to everybody. No one is immune. And the question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with suffering when we encounter it? Because look, this is the universal question. This has always been the question. Every human being asks that and every culture has some sort of an answer to this question. The Hindus would tell you that it's karma. And some of you might even espouse to karma, like Adam, everybody gets what they deserve. Whatever happens in your life, it is your fault, whether because of something you did in this life or in a previous life, good or bad, you're going to receive exactly what you deserve. That seems a little bit harsh. Buddhists would say uh, pain is an illusion. You should just get over it because it doesn't actually exist. There is no such thing as pain or suffering. We just need to change our mindset about it. And later on, we just kind of dissolve into the all soul and it'll all be fine then. Secular America has no answer whatsoever. Secular America believes that happiness, our personal happiness, is the grandest value. And so when pain intrudes, when that happiness is stolen from us or or taken away from us, we rage against it, but we don't really have an answer for it. If you don't believe that there is anything after this life, then what's there to yell about? It's just there, and there's no answers. But what do we do as Christians? as believers in Jesus Christ, because we too experience suffering and we too have that question of why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? What do I do with this? And look, for thousands of years, different theologians have been trying to answer that question. They produce things called a theodicy or theodicies. A, a theodicy is a, a, a defense of God in the presence of evil and suffering in the world. While all of them can be helpful in some measure, no single theodicy is satisfactory. And no one of them can actually explain or answer this question. Libraries of ink have been spilled trying to answer this question, but this is just a very complex and a mysterious topic, and we're never going to fully get our arms around it. But thankfully, the Bible does speak about suffering a lot. It's not silent on the subject. And it speaks about suffering in a very nuanced way. There's no one text or one book that gives us everything we need to know about suffering. In fact, when we think about suffering, there's usually one guy who comes to the top of the list. When we think about it, when we think about suffering, we think about 
Job, right, yeah, there's this book in the Bible called Job about a guy who is innocent. God declares him innocent, and yet he goes through unimaginable suffering. He loses his family, he loses his his possessions, he loses his health, even though he is innocent, and the whole book is a wrestling with, what do you do with that? The very fact that it's one of the oldest books in the Bible lets us know that everybody has been dealing with this. But Job is not the only place where the Bible really explores this. Right next to Job in the little section of our Bible called the wisdom literature in the middle, you have Job and then you're also going to find Proverbs. We studied that this past summer and Proverbs has a kind of very tit-for-tat idea where if you do these things, generally that's going to go well. You do those things, that generally will go poorly. It's a very kind of justice-based idea of suffering. But right next to that, you have the book of Ecclesiastes probably written by the same author, which espouses a very different view, where it laments about the fact that suffering seems to hit everybody no matter what, the wise and the foolish, the good and the bad, and everybody dies in the end, and the author is wrestling with this. Nestled in between all of those books, you have the book of Psalms, which is filled with lament, and you have David and other very righteous people pouring their hearts out to the Lord. We'll look at that next week, wrestling with this idea of suffering. And then all throughout the Bible, you see other different people dealing with suffering. Suffering is complex. There's no one answer. There's not an easy answer. There's just a lot of suffering in the world. Suffering, by the way, does come from different sources. There's no one way of talking about this. I can't even in one sermon really explain all of this. It would be hard to do that in a lifetime because suffering seems to come from all angles. Sometimes suffering comes into our life because of our own choices. I imagine we've all made terrible choices in life that have caused us suffering. Sometimes it's very easy to see where it comes from. We made very bad choices. Other times, though, we didn't do anything. Our suffering comes from some other people's choices. They made poor decisions, and now we are suffering for it. You see that with children, often with their parents or with others, where they're having to suffer for other people's actions. Thirdly, there's the suffering that comes just through loss. Sooner or later, we all begin to start losing our loved ones. In fact, the older folks in the congregation will let you know that the older that you get, the harder this becomes because you have to say goodbye to more and more people. The longer that you live, no one's going to be untouched by the suffering that comes through loss. And then there's just suffering that comes through this world. This is the most mysterious and hardest to understand type of suffering because this is just the suffering that's everywhere. This is disease, this is disaster, this is accident. These are things that don't seem to have any rhyme or reason to them and yet they affect us nonetheless. This is all the crazy things we see on our television, all the terrible stories that we hear ad nauseum coming out of our phones and our screens everywhere. There's just a lot of suffering and it affects everybody. And while we cannot fully answer the question of why all of these things exist, there are some things that we can bank on. Let me show you John 16, verse 33 to get us started. Listen to what Jesus says to us. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this verse, you get two things that you can bank on, two things we ought always to remember. In fact, I would memorize these verses, that in the world you have have trouble, but it take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus tells you first that suffering is inevitable. 
Suffering is inevitable. It does not matter who we are or how good we are or how rich we are or powerful we are or wise we are. Suffering is going to affect us sooner or later. Why? Because we live in the world. If we are going to be in this world, just like so many of all the people who walk through scripture, we too are going to have tribulation. We are going to have trouble at a certain level. This is just unavoidable. But here's the second bedrock truth. There is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope in Jesus Christ. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This world is broken, this world is sinful. However, Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has conquered this world. And so you can have hope, but that hope is not gonna come through our circumstances. It's not gonna come through our bank accounts. It's not gonna come through ourselves or our abilities. It can only come through the person of Jesus Christ. So we need to be aware of these realities that point us back to the Lord. This can prepare us for how to deal with suffering. And so that brings us to our passage in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. It is chock full. We'll we'll look at many verses in this passage today, but look what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In this passage, you see both of those bedrock realities. In the first instance, we recognize that suffering is inevitable. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Next verse, he says, it is as if all day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then verse 37, he says, no, in all these things. Paul does not give us an option to avoid all of these things. You can go around these things. You can ignore these things. You can sidestep these things. He says, no, 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 in all of these things. And Paul was speaking from personal experience. When you read that list there of of persecution, tribulation, nakedness, danger, sword, Paul had experienced almost every single one of those personally. And furthermore, our Savior Jesus Christ did too. The one who is perfect, who deserves nothing to happen to him, experienced all of these things. It is a reminder that in this world we will have trouble, but then he also reminds us of the second bedrock reality that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
And in verses 38 and 39, he says, there's literally nothing in all of creation that can snatch you out of God's hand, that can take you away from the love of God. Not your past, not your future, not any power in the universe. There's literally nothing in existence that can yank you away from the Lord. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Regardless of what we suffer and what we deal with in this world, there is a bedrock hope in Jesus Christ. And so I want to point you back to those realities. I want you to point you back to Scripture and what it teaches us to prepare us for when we inevitably suffer. If we know that suffering is coming, we ought to prepare us. We ought to look back to what we believe to be true to prepare us for the times when we are going to have to walk through Suffering. I want to talk about three bedrock or three uh, just parts of our theology, things that we believe as Christians that can prepare you. But before we do that, I need to ask a favor from some of you in the room. In tackling a topic like this, I am firmly aware that all of us are going to go through suffering, but I am also keenly aware that there are people who are suffering in this room today. It's not something that's going to happen or it has happened. You're in the midst of suffering right now. And if you're in the midst of that suffering, it might be hard even to hear some of these things. It would have been great to be prepared, but Adam, a minute, now, what do I do now? And look, our heart and our head don't always communicate very well when we're in the throes of suffering. And so if that's you here today as a brother or sister, can I just, one, encourage you? We're going to talk at the very end of the sermon today a little bit about what it's like to be in our suffering. And next week, we'll talk about personal grieving the entire time. But if I could ask you just to to humor us for a moment, the rest of us, as we look toward the things that can prepare us for the suffering that we will all inevitably walk through, I would appreciate that favor. But we are with you, we are for you, we are praying for you. I do want to speak to your situation as we get to the end. Let's look at these three parts of our theology that help us as we prepare ourselves for times of suffering. The first thing we need to all to remember is the creation and the fall. The first thing that can help you understand how to walk through suffering is what we believe about the creation and the fall. Scripture teaches us that God made everything. And when he made everything, he had a very specific design. In fact, every single day as he was making things, whether it be the day and the night and the lights and, and the land and the, and the animals and the sea and everything that's in them, he had this refrain at the end. He would say, and it was good. When God makes creation, he makes it good. He makes it perfect. He makes it right. Death is not a part of his creation. Sin and suffering are not a part of his creation. If you're here with us last week, we learned that the reason that death exists is because of sin. When sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, guess what? Death comes right along with it. All of the sin, death, and corruption of this world, it comes from that original sin. But this is not what God designed. This is not what he intended. Death is not natural. It is not good. It is wrong. And we know that deep down in our core, do we not? Whenever you and I are forced to to, to lose a loved one, when we have to say goodbye to a loved one through death, even when it's a death that you might say, Adam, they lived a really long life. They they really did well. Had a a friend who had to bury their grandmother at 99 years old who lived a long life in the Lord. It doesn't matter how good that death might be. It still feels wrong, doesn't it? To lose a loved one to have to say goodbye even for a time. It feels wrong. Do you know why? Because it is. Because it is wrong. 
It is not what God intended. It is not what God wanted. Last week, we looked at Mary and Martha and Lazarus after he died. Jesus comes to cover, comfort Mary and Martha. Next week, we'll look at this passage more. But and when he, Jesus goes to the tomb, it says that he weeps with Mary and Martha. But the word there for weeping is not simply a sorrow. It is an anger. He is angry at sin. He is angry at death. He is angry at what it has done to the people that he loves the most. And we can join him in that. Do you know why? Because death and the suffering and the evil of this world are not how things were supposed to be. It is not what God had intended And look, you can actually see that in the midst of Romans chapter 8. You can stay there in your passage, look back up at verse 20. I'll put it up on the screen. We're in the exact same chapter we're in. Paul tells us that sin is not just happening because of our actions. It's actually more progressive than that. It is more widespread than that. Look at verse 20 where it says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What does that mean? Paul's telling us that when we sinned, it wasn't just us as humanity who were corrupted, but because we were, in a sense, in charge of the world, that that corruption seeped into everything into the creation itself. All of this is broken. It is marred. It is not how it is supposed to be. And this is how untold evils have now found themselves in the world. Things like disease and disaster. Things that defy description. And when we begin to recognize what has, suffer- what has happened through death, we begin to recognize that suffering is now endemic to our reality. Suffering is going to occur to everyone, and sadly, because it's in the world at large, it is going to hit the just and the unjust. It is going to hit the righteous and the unrighteous, and it does not discriminate. When diseases come, you almost never can associate a specific action with that disease. If someone finds themselves with a cancer diagnosis, It is almost impossible to say, well, because you did this one thing or these things, that's what's caused this cancer in your life. Maybe there's a few instances where that can occur, but I would never say to somebody, well, well, we know why this has happened. This is, we know why this has happened to you. We can't say that. Cancer is not supposed to be here. It is just out here in the world as a part of our broken reality. And we can never say to somebody, well, this is why this has happened to you. We, We don't know. We can't know. But if that's the case, then the flip side would also be true. We could also not say, well, because I'm righteous, I'll never get cancer. Well, because I do these things, I'll never have to have that disease. Because I do these right things, well, then that can't happen to me. We can't say that because we live in a fallen creation. Creation itself is corrupted. You see this more clearly in natural disasters that come in and lay waste to tens of thousands of people at once. We experience this keenly in Alabama because we are tornado people, are we not? If you live in Birmingham, you're going to get real familiar with tornadoes. And when we're all watching TV, as James Spann helps us navigate the polygon to figure out where we are and what's happening, we recognize that when that tornado comes through and you watch the track, it doesn't bounce around to hit all the most evil people in your neighborhood. 
it just barrels a path of destruction indiscriminately to the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. It just barrels through because you and I live in a fallen creation and that suffering spreads far and wide and is indiscriminate. Knowing that this is how we are living ought to help us recognize that sometimes, even without no fault of our own, you're going to experience suffering in your life. And look at scripture. We ought to be able to look at this just understanding scripture alone. Look at all the people who had to suffer unjustly. It's not just Job. Go back to the very beginning. Abel, one of Adam and Eve's sons, Abel gets killed by his brother, Cain. You've got David who's gonna get hunted by Saul even though he doesn't deserve that. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. You've got John the Baptist who's going to get beheaded. Before him, a bunch of prophets are going to be killed. Most of the apostles are going to be martyred. And then there's Jesus Christ, the sinless son of God, who will be murdered. Even though they have not deserved these things, suffering is endemic into our reality. And so when it comes to suffering, we cannot live naively thinking, well, this just can't happen to me or it'll never happen to me or it can't possibly happen to me. If you and I live in this world, we are going to have trouble and we should be open to that sobering reality. Now, if that were all we had to say, that would be a very depressing thing indeed. If that's all that we knew, but that is not all that the Bible teaches us. We also learn that the Bible points us towards restoration. In fact, the Bible promises us restoration. What Jesus does by his resurrection and by our salvation is to promise us restoration. Look at verse 37 in Romans chapter 8 again. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus has conquered sin, death, and hell. Jesus has conquered all of the evil of this world, all the evil forces, all the sin, all the death, all of it. Jesus has conquered all of it. He is not simply a teacher. He doesn't simply come to walk with us. He doesn't simply sympathize with us. He says, no, I have conquered sin, death, and hell. And when Jesus Christ dies and then he rises again, he says, I have brand new life and I can give it to whomever I wish. And to anybody who puts their faith in Christ, Jesus promises not just that he can get you through suffering. He says, no, I can restore all things because what he intended from the beginning, he will absolutely bring to pass. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 21. At the very end, this is what God promises us. This is where we are going. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This is the promise of Jesus Christ. He does not simply come to say, I can pay for your sins. He says, no, I come to restore all of reality. I come to bring you to the place, the very reality I had intended from the beginning. I will bring you to a place where you and I will experience it and we don't have to contend with a fallen world. We don't have to contend with all the evil, the pain and the suffering of this life. If you have put your hope in Jesus Christ, that is your future. Regardless of what you deal with now, that is the future that God has promised to us. And he actually says, it even starts now. 
Because God doesn't simply say, hey, endure this and then later on it'll get better. He says, no, I can actually even take the suffering you're going through now and I can transform it to make it even into a better glory. Look at 2 Corinthians and what Paul says here. Chapter four, verse 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Did you catch that? Even though we go through affliction in this world, God says, listen, I can even transform all of that. I can turn all of that into a glory. What God is doing is literally, he is allowing a salvation to seep back into history and to transform and to redeem even the things that were evil in this world. He says, I have the power to transform them even to make them into a good. This is the amazing redemptive power of the Lord that he gives to us. And so look, if all of these things are true, it gives us a different perspective. When you and I go through suffering, we need to recognize this world is not all there is. There is more that is coming. If all your hope is just put in in this world, then yes, despair. But if you recognize that this world is, is more than this, there are unseen things that are eternal. It's these present things that are transitory. If I understand that there's more to this life than what is seen, it allows me to help walk through this temptation and trial. Furthermore, it means that no matter what suffering we are going through, all suffering is temporary. All of it. He said, Adam, how can you possibly say that I've been struggling for years? Yes, you have. And it may be that I do and you do and that we do. We might have to struggle for years, but there is an end to that struggle. And beyond that, restoration. There is redemption. There is transformation because our God has promised it. If he can conquer death, do you not think he can do that for our sufferings as well? This is what God promises us. Now, if that is the case, we say, Adam, how can I be sure of that? And here's where we have to put our trust in God's sovereignty. That's a very important thing for us to understand. We need to put our trust in God's sovereignty. You say, Adam, what do you mean by sovereignty? Well, God's sovereignty is this. It means that God is ultimately in charge of everything. When we talk about God's sovereignty, it means that God is ultimately in charge of everything. But this is where somebody goes, Adam, that's just the problem, isn't it? Adam, we're talking about suffering. That's my problem. If he's in charge of everything, then how come he's letting this happen? If he's in charge of everything, how could he possibly allow this to occur? Think of all the, the tragedies and, the, and just the unimaginable terrors that have been inflicted upon on seemingly innocent people. If God is so good and he loves us and he's powerful, how could he possibly allow this to occur? This is my problem with God's sovereignty. And look, I've already said to you, I I can't fully answer that question. God is beyond us and has reasons beyond what we can fully understand. I I can't tell you how it all works, but I can tell you some things that are absolutely true. In the midst of God's sovereignty, our our suffering doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love you or that he does not care. What God tells us is that beyond our understanding, God is able to be sovereign even in the midst of this chaotic world. It's a mystery. You say, well, Adam, what, what does that even mean here? Well, here's, what the, here's how sovereignty plays out. Sovereignty means this, that you and I are culpable for our actions. Whatever we choose, that's what we're going to choose. God doesn't force us to make these choices. When we make evil choices, that's us. The Bible never attributes God with causing sin or evil, ever. 
When you and I make sinful choices, we make those choices and we will be held accountable for those choices. But here's the amazing sovereignty of God that regardless of what we choose, God is so powerful and so wise, he actually can still maneuver all things that all of his plans are accomplished. That's the sovereignty of God. It is mind-boggling in its complexity. We can't even fully get our minds around it. But God says these two things that are mysterious but still true, that we are, we are, uh, we are going to be held accountable for our actions because they are ours and ours alone. And God is in charge and in control and everything will work out exactly as he says it will. That is the sovereignty of God. And, and look, this is what brings us to probably one of the most famous verses that gets quoted to people in the midst of their suffering, Romans eight twenty eight. Same chapter, you're already there. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called to his purpose. How many of you have heard this verse before? How many of you have had this verse quoted to you before? How many of you quoted this verse to other people before? Yes, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is a big one, right? Whenever we go through suffering, we say, well, you know what? God's just working all things out together according uh, to, to his good. We need to be very clear about what this verse is saying. Notice what it's saying here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, it does not say that God wanted this evil to befall you. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that God caused this evil to come upon you. Doesn't say that. What it says is that in God's sovereignty, there's nothing that this evil world can do that can thwart his ultimate plans for you. And God is able to work all things together, even the evil that other people intend for our good and for his glory. You see this spelled out completely in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. If you remember that story, Joseph has these dreams from the Lord, but his brothers are enraged by this. They are so enraged that they sell him into slavery. Joseph has been literally decades in prison, not wondering why he is there, he will get accused of false things that he has not done, but he holds on to his integrity through all of this. And after 20 years and more, the Lord elevates him to the second place in Egypt. The Lord's going to honor him, but also through him is going to help a ton of people who otherwise would have died through a famine. And when his own brothers who were being affected by that famine, his own brothers who sold him into slavery, come before him, look at how Joseph responds in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 19. It says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph didn't know that when he was 20 years in prison. He didn't know that when he was being falsely accused. He didn't know that when he was getting sold into slavery. But as he looks back, he recognizes that was an evil thing that you did, but God had a greater plan than even what you wanted. And God can turn even your evil around to the greatest good. This is the sovereignty of God in action. We do not see it in the moment. We don't understand it in the moment. I would not ever declare to you that I understand how that works in the moment, but it is yet still true. We can put our trust that even though I don't understand why I'm going through this trial, why I'm suffering as I do, God has promised me that even though other people might have meant it for evil, the enemy might have meant it for evil, my God can actually transform these things and he will. He has promised and I never have to doubt it. He will bring me to a place of full restoration. It is bedrock. You can count on it. And in the midst of our chaos that we do not have answers, we can have hope because of the restoration that God is going to bring to us. 
But here's the third thing that we need to remember when we find ourselves in suffering. We need to remember the atonement. We need to remember how Jesus has brought this amazing salvation to us. Because when we look at our atonement of how Jesus saves us from our sins, we find that Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, will come to a cross and will be murdered, not for his own sins, but for mine and for yours and for all the sins of the world. Jesus takes on our sin. Now think about this. That amazing, cosmic, God-sized deity who is sovereign over all the universe also suffers. That is the most mind-bending reality that we learn as believers. That the God who knows all and understands all and controls all does not simply live in unapproachable logic at the end of the line. He does not simply roll his eyes at us at our temporary troubles knowing what's going to come in the future. No, that grand sovereign God enters into our reality and suffers alongside of us. There is no other religion in all the world that declares this. That the God of the universe would come and identify with us in our suffering. That he would experience it. That he would go through it. He would say, I love you so much. I will literally come and be in the midst of the suffering with you. I will feel it even as you feel it. This is what Jesus Christ has done to us, done for us. Look look at Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 15. Listen to what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a high priest who understands because he's felt it. He understands because he too is hurt. He too has been wounded. He too has experienced the suffering of this world. You ever thought about all the sufferings that Jesus went through in this world? I think we naturally gravitate to the cross and we should, but think about all the things that happened throughout his life. Right as Jesus was born, he is oppressed, so much so that he has to flee his homeland and live as a refugee in Egypt for years. When he comes back, he is misunderstood by the people in his life. He will suffer the loss of Joseph, his father, at some point. When he begins his ministry, He will amass around him disciples that he is sometimes frustrated by. They disappoint him at different points. One of them will betray him in the most cruel fashion possible with a kiss. The very people he has come to work for and to help and to save are the very same people throwing libelous, slanderous accusations at him, saying, you've got a demon and you, you can't possibly know the law. And how dare you say that you will talk for God when he is God himself. He finds himself in danger from the political authorities, in danger from the religious authorities, and yes, at the very end of his life, he will find himself tortured and executed with the most excruciating pain that Rome could devise. And he is the perfect, sinless son of God. Jesus, who doesn't deserve anything, has entered into our pain and says, I understand exactly what you're going through. I have felt even more than what you were going through. I am in the midst of this with you. Look what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 3. 
Isaiah 53 is, is a classic text that, that prefigures Christ, that points us to Christ. And look what it says in verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When we think about Jesus, do we primarily think of him as a man of sorrows? When you and I go through our own sorrows, when we go through our own suffering, when we go through our own pain, we have a Savior who is keenly aware of what we're experiencing and is right there with us in the midst of it. This can be an incredible comfort to us when we find ourselves struggling and in pain. And so we look to the creation to know that suffering should not surprise us. We look to the restoration to know that no suffering is permanent. Instead, it is only temporary. And we look to the atonement to know that our God is with us in the midst of these things. I have no idea what's going to happen to you in your life or mine. But I cannot possibly guarantee that we won't go through suffering. Instead, I can guarantee the opposite. All of us will experience suffering. But there is hope in Jesus Christ that literally conquers anything we might go through. Which leads me finally to talk to those of us who are suffering now. I do not understand why you are going through what you're going through. I couldn't possibly explain to you why that is happening. I don't know if I or anybody ever could. And I can't even possibly say I know how you feel because I don't. And other people in this room probably don't know how you feel either. But if I might just point you to a few things this morning. The first is you have a Savior who understands. He absolutely understands your pain. He absolutely understands the fear, the anxiety, the suffering, and the pain that you're going through. You have a God who absolutely understands what you're going through. Even when you don't understand, He understands what you're going through. You're not alone in this. And that's the second thing. I want to remind you that He is with you. When you and I go through suffering, it is very easy to feel as if God is not there at all. I've had times in the midst of my own suffering where it just feels like God cuts out the lights. At the time when you need him most, it feels like he's not there, but it's not true. He's always there. He never leaves. In fact, he promises. Look what he says. He says, nothing can snatch you away from me ever. He tells his people this. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse two. Notice what it says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they are not gonna overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flame will not consume you. He doesn't say if, he says when. But when you go through the fire and when you go through the flood, you will never be alone because I will be with you. He says that in his great commission. We learn that in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. Even when we feel like he may not be there, God's presence is promised to you and there is nothing that can snatch you out of his hands. And here's the final thing though. He is making all things new. He is making all things new. This pain might be unbearable. It might literally just be unbearable. You might think there's no way I can survive it. And I don't know if you can. But I can guarantee you this. There is a God who is making all things new. Even at this moment, he has given you this promise and he absolutely will bring it about. In the midst of our pain, we can turn to him and knowing he is making all things new. But I know that's hard. I don't know what the disciples felt like 
on the day after Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus dies on a Friday, but he doesn't rise until Sunday, which means they had to live through Saturday. I imagine that was the hardest day of their entire life. Remember, they don't have the hindsight of history to know that Jesus is going to rise the next morning. They were shocked when it occurred, which means on Saturday, they're just living in the shock of now knowing that Jesus is dead. He is gone. They're shocked from what they saw, shocked at what this means, in fear for their lives and in terror for what this means. They have no idea what is coming, and it just stretches for hour to hour until finally the next day when Jesus rises from the grave and turns their mourning into dancing. But maybe we do know how they feel. Because in reality, isn't Saturday where we all live while we're in this life? Because we know that Jesus has died and risen again. We know that one day he is returning again to make all things new. But in the meantime, we live in Saturday in the midst of a broken world where things aren't made right yet and where we don't understand clearly yet and where it hasn't all been made new. But it's going to be. So may we not lose our faith. May we not give up on the Lord because if we persevere, you will see the Lord make all things new regardless of what we suffer. And so this morning, bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment if you would. I'm gonna invite Stephen and Audrey to come back up and we're gonna sing a couple songs, but... This first song, I actually don't want you to sing. I just want you to hear and allow our brother and sister to sing over us. It's a song that has comforted me in the past years, and I hope it comforts you. Maybe you just want to sit in silence. Maybe you want to pray. Maybe you just want to listen to the words. Because look, I don't, I don't know where you are today. I know where some of you are, but not nearly most of you. And even then, I never know the fullness. Who can? But you do. You know that beyond the surface, there's a lot more pain than we ever show and a lot more hurt than we want to admit. And if you're struggling with that here today, can I just remind you that the Lord loves you? And I don't understand any more than you do. I just know that he does and he won't abandon you and that he can and will make all things right and all things new. And so let's listen for him. Let's trust in him for whatever Saturday we find ourselves in and let him carry us forward. If you're not in that place yet, I'm sure we will be at different points in our life and there's a chance for us to say, God, even now I choose to trust you. Ahead of time, I choose to trust you. You are sovereign, you are good, and you love us and you can make all things right. So hear this song and we're just gonna listen together and the second song we'll stand and sing together and that second song I'll be here up at the front. If at any point you want somebody to pray with you, our prayer room is open. There's people ready and willing to sit and pray for you and with you. But let's make this choice in this moment to turn ourselves over to him. So Father, help us. Speak to us. Lord, my heart breaks from my brothers and sisters for what they are dealing with. Lord, you've heard my cries in my past for the sufferings I've gone through. Lord, we need you. And so would you remind us again of these truths, even when we don't fully understand, and point us back to the hope that is in you and you alone. We love you, Lord. Thank you for walking us through our suffering. 